You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me on today's program will be returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. I'm going to talk to Carl about the future of medical care, and I'm also going to get his forecast for stocks, bonds, and gold. I will say right up front that two good people can disagree, and uh, Carl and I have extremely different views on the future of tangible assets and gold, which is the topic of this segment. Now, if I were to ask you to guess how many acres of U.S. farmland was owned by foreign companies or foreign entities, what would you guess? Well, you probably would guess a lot less than the real number if you're like most people. There is now more than 30 million acres of farmland that's owned by foreign companies or foreign entities. That's a significant amount of farmland. Now, to put that into perspective, 30 million acres is more acreage than the state of Ohio. It's more acres than the state of Pennsylvania. Both of those states are just under 30 million acres. Now, the amount of farmland in the United States owned by foreign concerns has doubled in the last two decades. NPR recently did a story on the topic, and I'll give you just a bit from that piece. When the stock market tanked during the past recession, foreign investors began buying up big swaths of U.S. farmland. And because there are no federal restrictions on the amount of land that can be foreign-owned, it's been left up to individual states to decide on any limitations. Now, it's likely that even more American land will end up in foreign hands, especially in states with no restrictions on ownership. With the median age of U.S. farmers at 55, many face retirement with no prospect of family members willing to take over. The National Young Farmers Coalition anticipates that two-thirds of the nation's farmland will change hands over the next couple of decades. Now that, again, was from an NPR article. Now according to that same article, Canadian investors are the largest foreign investors in U.S. farmland. Now in the state of Ohio, German interests own about 71,000 acres of farmland. And in 2013, as many of you know, Smithfield Foods, which is a large pork producer, was purchased by a Chinese company. That company, as a result of that purchase, now owns 146,000 acres of U.S. farmland. Now, why am I talking about this on the program today? Well, it's important to understand what's driving this trend. And there are a couple of factors. The first is that American farmers over the past few years are having an extremely tough go of it. Because of this, there is more farmland for sale. Now, as traditional family farms continue to try to operate in an environment where profitability has been difficult and certainly hasn't been helped by recent tariffs, many farmers are opting out of the business and cashing out of their land particularly as it's time for the next generation to step up and take over the family farm. 
Now, there was an article published recently in Farm Progress, and that article said the average age of a U.S. farmer is increasing, and at the same time, profitability is decreasing. Of the roughly 2 million farms and ranches in the United States, according to Farm Progress, 96% are family-owned. Now, here is a statistic that might surprise you. Average farm income annually is about $43,000. Now, that is a deceiving number because the same Farm Progress article states that only 43.6% of farms had net positive income in 2017. So only about 44% of farms made money in 2017. 56% lost money. Now, when you couple that with the average age of all farmers being 57 and a half, you get a perfect storm for foreign entities and foreign concerns to come in and buy up U.S. farmland. Now, given that farmers tend to work long, hard hours, and given that in today's climate it's been difficult to make profits, the children of farmers have largely lost interest in working in the family business. Now, according to another article published in the Herald Journal, in 1900, 119 years ago, half of all farmers in the United States were under the age of 45. By 2012, the demographics had drastically changed. Farmers under the age of 45 account for just 16% of all farmers. The Herald Journal article quotes Mr. Lon Wright, a dairy farmer and commodity grower, who said that of the 22 children in his extended family, only one decided to stay on the farm. So consequently, there's a lot of land for sale. Which brings me to the second trend and why I bring this up on today's program. The second trend is simply this. Smart money around the globe is gradually diversifying by transitioning from paper assets to tangible assets. After the financial crisis of 2008, the Chinese government stepped up and publicly stated its intent was to invest in overseas agricultural operations, and China has been very successful in doing that. I found an article from Southeast Produce Weekly, and I want to give you just a little bit from that article. China's need for agricultural resources and technology and the country's considerable financial clout are driving rapid growth in Chinese investment in agriculture and food sectors abroad. The trend reflects the growing global ambition of Chinese companies, and it's attracting the attention of business and government leaders around the world. Now, I probably don't need to tell you all that China has not only invested in farmland and agricultural operations outside the country. China has also been accumulating another tangible asset, gold, for many years. Now, according to Chinese investment statistics, overseas ventures in agriculture, forestry, and fisheries soared from $300 million in 2009 to 
$3 billion in 2016, an 11-fold growth in seven years. That's significant investment. But these totals really understate the magnitude of Chinese agricultural focus foreign assets because the statistics exclude the acquisition of food processing and trading companies classified in manufacturing and service sectors. A more complete count issued by China's Ministry of Agriculture said the country had over 1,300 agricultural, forestry, and fisheries enterprises with registered overseas investments of $26 billion at the end of 2016. Now, why do I bring this up? To make a point. We live in a, an economy based in fractionalized banking. Our money is really based on debt. And the more debt that is actually acquired, the more economic growth actually seems to grow, but it's actually an illusion of growth, as I'll discuss with Carl Denninger in the next segment. See, as debt levels build and rise to unsustainable levels, at a certain point, the debt accumulation trend has to reverse, and we get deflation, and deflation wreaks havoc with paper assets, like stocks, and I'll talk about the driving force between Uh, behind, rather, the stock market advance over the past several years in the last segment of today's program, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. But the smart money is moving from paper assets to tangible assets, at least in part. And I think it's important that you do as well. This is the last week we'll be offering the New Retirement Rules book for free. There are strategies in diversifying into tangible assets that we outline in the book, It is an Amazon bestseller. You can get your free copy by visiting the website, newretirementrulesbook.com. I'll be back after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of RLA Radio. I'd like to invite you to get a free copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The book will help you identify the risks that could threaten your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement and give you strategies to consider to help you avoid these threats. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The New Retirement Rules book will thoroughly explain the two-bucket approach to managing your nest egg that we frequently discuss on the RLA radio program. You'll also discover why the traditional approach to retirement income planning may fail many investors moving ahead. For a limited time, the book is free. Just visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to get your free copy. www.newretirementrulesbook.com Welcome back to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on the program today is uh, a guest I always enjoy having on the program, Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl is a 
prolific commentator. You can uh, read about his perspective on things at market-ticker.org. The website, again, is market-ticker.org. And, uh, Carl, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. So, Carl, here we are. The political season uh, is ramping up. Um, There are a lot of promises being made and a lot of positions being taken, but it seems like no one is talking about one of the biggest ones, and that is uh, debt and deficits. Uh, What's your take? Oh, it, it, you have an economy that isn't really expanding and hasn't since 2000 in real terms. And the, the means that the government and the Federal Reserve have adopted in concert, mostly driven by Congress, is to run deficits in order to create the appearance of prosperity. And like all exponential series, when you start doing this, it looks like a pretty good idea. But exponents are governed by the laws of mathematics. And if you keep doing it, it doesn't take very long before the drag starts to show up. And we're now well into that realm where we're running trillion-dollar deficits during the supposed best economy and best employment environment in the last 50 years. So, uh, you know, for how long does that continue? And the answer is not much longer. So... Carl, it seems like, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that's going to have to happen is that um, if the U.S. dollar is already losing a lot of credibility around the world, there's maybe not a lot of other great choices, but Russia has been dumping uh, U.S. government debt. Um, you know, you, you, you take a look at uh, some of the talk about gold-backed trade notes and a lot of the things you see in the uh, alternate news sources. Um at what point does, do, do we get to this? The, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And what does that look like? When, when, does, when, when does all this come home to roost? I think we're, uh, at, at best, another five or six years away from that. And at worst, it just takes one economic dislocation of some kind that sets it off. Uh, mathematically, Medicare gets into trouble by 2024, okay? And so the problem with that is that that's the point at which, according to the CBO estimates anyway, that interest payments on the national debt will exceed that program size. You aren't going to get away with that, okay? That's not going to happen. And unless you stop it, then the, the mathematical outcome is inevitable. You would have a, a economic foldback and some sort of dislocation from an economic perspective, which could very easily live to, you know, lead to civil fracturing or even a civil war in this country. Uh, you know, shut off the EBT cards and see how long the cities stay in one piece. So the problem is the only way to stop it is to stop the scams in the medical system because that's where all the spending is coming from. And from a percentage of the budget perspective, it's the only piece that matters. Uh, You're not going to cut defense to zero. That would be stupid. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that say, well, you know, we should stop being the world's policeman, and that's a very defensible position. But even if you did that, even if you took all the foreign entanglements out of it, we'd still have a defense budget that was of substantial size. You you can't possibly think that you could just kind of tell all the people in the military, oh, sorry, we don't need you anymore. That's not realistic. So let's... 
dig into uh, a couple things that you said. I want to backtrack here a little bit. First of all, uh, at the beginning of the segment, you stated that this economy has not really expanded in real terms. Now, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this and say, wait a minute, since 2000, that's 19 years ago now, 18 and a half years ago now, uh, we've had some terrific boom cycles. Uh, walk through the math or walk through your rationale for making that statement with the listeners that might not be familiar with it. Sure. The, the math is pretty simple. If you, if you have $1,000 in the economy in total and you run a deficit of 10%, then the next year you have $1,100 in the economy, okay? So if that is the case, then all of the things that are produced in the economy have to sell for, in aggregate, that $1,100 instead of the $1,000. So before you figure out what the economy actually did, you must subtract the deficit back off from the change in GDP. You have to do this each and every year because that treasury debt that's issued doesn't go away. It stays out there in the economy and circulates. So this year, uh, this last year, we had almost a trillion dollars worth of deficits. Um, the last fiscal, I, I think the total, I'm not where I can get at my computer numbers right now, but it, it's about $1,100 billion, so $1.1 trillion, and we had a $20 trillion economy. Well, that means that there was 5% more put into the economy in dollars. So you have to subtract that from the change in GDP before you look at the change, the, the actual change in real terms. It's just basic arithmetic. And when you do that, you find one year since the crash um, in 2007, 2008, that had a mildly positive number. It was about 1% in change. And essentially no years since 2000 that had any material positive numbers. None of, none of the run-up to the crash in 06, 07 actually had positive economic numbers when adjusted for this. And so what you've got here is an economy that since that time has been driven entirely by government, government deficit spending. That's all it is. It's a fraud. So, Carl, when you, when you couple that with the fact that private sector debt is now at what many would argue is an unsustainable level when you look at what's going on in the subprime auto sector, student loan debt, credit card debt. Um, what additional impact has that had on the reported economic growth, and do we need to make some adjustments for that also? Well, yes and no. Um, the Student loans are a part of the federal number now because Obama federalized all the student lending. Okay, so that's now part of the deficit figure by itself. Debt that is backed by an asset that's taken off the market is not long-term inflationary because if let's say that you have a $300,000 house and you borrow $200,000. Well, if you go to sell the house before you pay the $200,000 back, you have to subtract the 200 grand out of whatever you get from selling the house because you got to pay the loan off. So provided you impound an asset when a loan is taken, there's no long-term change in the monetary picture. On the other hand, unbacked credit, which credit cards are, as an example, um, does not have that effect. That debt stays in the system and needs to be subtracted out. 
But in terms of percentages, the other sources of unbacked credit emission are relatively small. The big one is the federal deficit. And you have to look at not just the published number, you have to look at the debt to the penny figures because what Treasury has done every year since Ronald Reagan was president is steal the payroll tax receipts to make the deficit number look smaller. But you can't do that without it showing up in the debt to the penny numbers because you have to issue bonds in order to in order to make that happen. So Carl, when uh, when we get to this point that, in, in your view, would be you know at, at longest five or six years out, and we'll go back and talk about Medicare here, uh, if not in this segment, the next one. Um, what does that end game look like? Uh, do, do we see commerce stop? Do we see a different world reserve currency? In your view, how does this shake out, and how will our listeners be affected? Well, I don't know that you get a different world reserve currency because I don't know that anybody else is in a better position to provide one. Uh, This seems to be a global phenomenon. Japan did this after the Nikkei crashed, and they haven't managed to end up back where they started yet. And yet, supposedly, Kuroda, you know, I I can fix this. I can fix Well, okay, guys, um, exactly how many decades do you get to try to fix it and not have it work? Um, the, The record on this is unbroken. Every nation that has tried to do this has failed at it, and they have either undergone what amounts to a permanent decrease in standard of living that compounds over time, and ultimately this tends to lead to social upheaval and even war. So I don't know precisely what breaks first, but anybody that thinks that the low-hanging fruit will not be plucked to the extent that it can be and then the things that can't be paid for just simply won't, is wrong. Um, you know, at some point, when you run out of money, you, you have to stop spending because your checks bounce. And what will end up happening with the federal government is that no matter what the Fed tries to do, the rate of interest for the federal government to continue to do this and continue to issue this debt will start to rise at a precipitous rate. And if the Fed tries to monetize that, then they impoverish the bottom 90% of the population, which even includes people who think they're pretty well off, like myself, uh, it's, it's not just going to hit poor people, it's going to hit everybody. So, Kyle, when you take a look at, you know, the Yellow Vest movement in France, you take a look at some of the, uh, what I would I'll call them uh, fringe politicians, fringe political movements that are gaining traction. Uh, here in the United States, you take a look at uh, the number of millennials that think socialism is a good idea. Are we seeing the beginning of this social upheaval now? I mean, are the cracks in the foundation and it's becoming evident? Well, it's, it's even worse than that, Dennis, because you have every large tech organization, the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Googles, all of them are hard left socialist leaning. You look at what's going on there, they say, if you don't espouse and hold these views, we'll demonetize your channels and throw you off the platform. So you're basically saying if you're not in that camp, you can't earn a living as a journalist or as a, you know, as a reporter. Well, what happens when you take away someone's... Eventually, there's going to be violence that comes out of that, and a lot of it. The bigger problem that you run into, though is that these systems don't work. Take a look at Los Angeles, San Francisco, and other enclaves like that, the homelessness and the drug abuse. These people have more, these cities have more money than God, and they can't manage to get people that are homeless off the streets. So, 
Carl, we have just a little bit of time left in this segment. Uh, there's been a lot of volatility in the stock market. That's a topic that is very much on the minds of many of our listeners. Um, are, are we going to see uh, a stock market correction here this year? Do you think the Fed will, will maybe cave and that uh, we'll get another rally here to carry us through the election of 2020? Oh, I think the Fed will cave. I think the Fed's in the back pocket of the market and knows full well that if it doesn't provide what they, you know, what the market wants, there'll be a hissy fit. Um, but whether or not you'll actually get a rally out of that is unknown. At some point, the people in the market are going to wake up to the fact that enabling the federal government to run trillion-dollar deficits, which is what a rate cut would do, uh, makes the problem worse rather than better. I just don't know when that happens. When it does... You're not going to get a small correction. You're going to get the, the kind of drawdown we saw in 07 and 08. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest on today's program is Mr. Carl Denninger. You can check out his uh, very prolific blogging at market-ticker.org. And Carl will join us when the radio show resumes after these words. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of RLA Radio. I'd like to invite you to get a free copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The book will help you identify the risks that could threaten your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement and give you strategies to consider to help you avoid these threats. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The New Retirement Rules book will thoroughly explain the two-bucket approach to managing your nest egg that we frequently discuss on the RLA radio program. You'll also discover why the traditional approach to retirement income planning may fail many investors moving ahead. For a limited time, the book is free. Just visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to get your free copy. www.newretirementrulesbook.com Welcome back to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is Mr. Carl Denninger. If uh, you're just joining us and missed the last segment, uh, you can read Carl's perspective at market-ticker.org. The website, again, is market-ticker.org, and I would encourage you to check that out. Carl, in the last segment... Um, we talked a little bit about some of the the scams in the medical system, and, and you, you uh, alluded to the fact that that's really where a lot of, of savings can come from, and that's where a lot of, of, of money is wasted. Uh, just to kind of frame this conversation, can uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that you're, you're referring to? Well, last year, between Medicare and Medicaid, the federal government spent about $1.2 trillion, $1,200 billion. The total federal spending on all programs combined was approximately $4 trillion. So roughly 30%, give or take a bit, is between those two programs alone. Another $700 billion or thereabouts is Social Security, most of which is old age pensions, but a substantial piece of it is disability payments, 
and a large percentage of that is scammed. In other words, those are people who are not actually disabled, but when they lost their jobs in the crash, for example, they found it easier to go on disability and, and get free health care and everything else rather than go back to work. And one of the problems with that program is that two years after you get on Social Security disability, you qualify for Medicare no matter how old you are. Now, that's a little secret that a lot of people don't know about. So if you stay on disability for two years, you get free lifetime medical care even if you're 30. All right. So this is, this is a problem, but the real issue from the medical perspective is the spending. Uh, we have, in, in the, between Medicare and Medicaid, the federal government spends approximately $400 billion a year just on one disease alone, and that's diabetes. That's between the actual cost of the disease and then all the complications and things that go along with it, the people having their, their legs and their arms amputated, they go blind. Um, ultimately, you end up on kidney dialysis and you die. All of this is extremely expensive, and it's a very nasty way to go on top of it. Um, we could stop all of that, essentially, for everyone that's type 2 diabetic, if they simply stopped eating carbohydrates. Because for the vast majority of people that are diabetic, they're diabetic and type 2 because they're overweight. If they stopped eating carbs, they would not be overweight, and they also would have normal blood sugar. So rather than tell them, we're not going to give you $400 billion unless you do this first and it doesn't work, which for some very small percentage of them it would not, but for most people it will, we instead indulge what amount to childhood fantasies, that you can stuff anything you want down your throat in any quantity, you can make yourself sick, and then the rest of society is forced to pay for it. And on top of that... We allow the medical firms to engage in price fixing and collusion that has been illegal for more than 100 years, and yet we will not bring criminal charges and break it up. 15 United States Code Chapter 1 says, that's the Sherman Act, by the way, uh, says that any attempt to monopolize or restrain trade or fix prices is a felony. It carries a 10-year prison term for each instance. The, the medical and drug companies went to the Supreme Court twice to try to claim exemptions to this in the late 1970s and 1980s. Uh, first case was called Royal Drug, and the second one was Maricopa County. It was a medical society in Arizona. They lost both times. So we not only have a law that applies, we have an industry that twice went to the Supreme Court trying to get it declared not to apply, they lost both cases. And yet you can't find a single attorney general anywhere, not at the state level, not at the federal level, nowhere, nor anyone in Congress, who will stand up and say, this stops. And as a result, we spend five times as much in this country on medicine as any other free capitalist society in the world. Just one quick example. If you have hepatitis C, there is a drug called Sovaldi that actually cures it. It was introduced, and in the United States, originally it sold for $90,000. It's a three-month course of treatment, a dollar pill for 90 days. You can get on a plane 
fly to India, get the same medication for under a thousand bucks. That's ten dollars a pill. Now, they're not selling at a loss in India. So why can't I get on a plane with an empty suitcase, go over there and fill it full of Savaldi and bring it back to the United States and destroy that price? And the answer is the drug companies went to Congress and got that made illegal. So if I try that, I will go to prison. That is how they get away with this. And we can stop this as a nation. If we stopped it, Note that I, I pointed out that we spent $1.2 trillion last year between Medicare and Medicaid in the federal budget. That is almost exactly the amount of the federal deficit. If we were to get rid of that and stop it, costs would drop by 80%, and you would almost completely eliminate the federal deficit without doing anything else. So, Carl, the question is... Uh why are we not hearing this type of information from a lot more sources? This seems, to anybody listening, obviously very egregious. Well, it's ridiculously egregious, but you got to remember what the incentives are to keep it on the other side. Uh, if you look at the payroll reports, which come out every month, we have been putting about 30,000 people a month to work in the medical scams, one out of ten of them is a doctor or nurse. In other words, actually provides care to real people and helps someone. The other 90% of those people are paper pushers, bureaucrats, and insurance-related employees, people who do coding and things like this. If we were to fix this, essentially all of those people would immediately lose their jobs. That's 300,000 people a year for the last ten years. So that, that is, that's the reason neither the Democrats or Republicans will go anywhere near this. They know what happens if they do. The problem is that if, if you were to do this, they'd lose their jobs immediately, but then the economy would boom, and they'd get new jobs. They'd just be in a different field. So, Carl, the uh, late economist Herbert Stein had a saying that I like to quote periodically. He said, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. So this is something, obviously, that fits into that category of being unsustainable, as Mr. As Mr. Stein said. So my, my question is, um, how, how does this end? I mean, is this the, the five-year time bomb at the most that you're talking about? And then, or do we go back to rationing? Do we, we, do we go down that road? How, how does this play out? Well, yeah, this is the five-year time bomb. The, the problem is if the market comes to the conclusion that the government will not stop doing it no matter what, then you get an interest rate explosion upwards and a detonation in the economy. The stock market collapses, and so does most of everything else. If, on the other hand, the government decides that it is going to stop spending ever-increasing amounts of compounding rates, in this sort of a fashion, that anybody that's dependent on it, if they don't fix the model, everyone that's dependent on it dies. So, I mean, you know, you, you think about this, if you're in a situation where you need, you know, you got a medicine cabinet full of stuff, 
And you have to have that every day in order to maintain your health. If it gets cut off, you're dead. So, Colonel, the time we have left, um, let me get your take on uh, where how, how gold plays into all this. I have different guests on the program that have different perspectives on gold. Uh, historically speaking, gold has always been real money. Uh, what's your position on holding gold or maybe even gold mining shares in a portfolio? Um, I think it's highly speculative. If you look at the at the history since the gold window was was closed, and then you know, of course, it, it was technically illegal to hold and trade it until you know the so-called reforms, right? So there was there was a long period of time where there was no market for gold at all. Um, if you happened to hold gold during that time, you had a brick because you couldn't sell it for anything. It was not exchangeable. I don't see that happening again. But if you look at the at the record of holding gold from, say, 1975 or 76 um, to the present day, there are a dozen financial assets, including the S&P 500 or the Dow, that outperformed it as an asset class by a factor of four or five. So I don't know how anybody gets the idea that it's a good long-term hedge against anything. It certainly hasn't worked out that way in the last hundred years. So give me your take on the U.S. Treasury market moving ahead in the time we have left. We've seen the yield on the 30-year bond now drop to just over 2.5%. I read that uh, a number of hedge fund managers are now uh, buying U.S. Treasuries, thinking rates are going to go even lower. Uh, What's your take? Well, yeah, if you're a fund manager, then what you're doing is you're buying at the discounted price with the coupon embedded into that. So the price of bonds goes down as rates go up and vice versa, and it's multiplied by the duration. So... If you are a hedge fund manager, because U.S. Treasuries are considered impossible to default, you can use effectively infinite leverage. Uh, This is an extremely popular play when you believe rate moves are coming. If you're wrong about it, you get ruined in exactly the same way. So um, for an individual person that is not swinging around somebody else's money as leverage, I I would say if you want to be somewhere, you want to be in the short end of the curve because at least you'll get your your dollars back out. Now, what they're worth is another question. But trying to protect your wealth in a highly inflationary environment, uh, if you're living within that country, is extremely difficult to do. You're far better off putting your efforts into solving the political issues that are going to cause it because that has a better chance of success. Well, we are going to have a leave it to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger, joining us from the road. And, uh, Carl, thanks so much for your time. Love to have you back on the program. Anytime. Thank you very much. We will return after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of RLA Radio. I'd like to invite you to get a free copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. Visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to request your free copy. The book will help you identify the risks that could threaten your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement and give you strategies to consider to help you avoid these threats. 
Visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to request your free copy. The New Retirement Rules Book will thoroughly explain the two-bucket approach to managing your nest egg that we frequently discuss on the RLA radio program. You'll also discover why the traditional approach to retirement income planning may fail many investors moving ahead. For a limited time, the book is free. Just visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to get your free copy. www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am Dennis Tuberg and your host. Thanks for tuning in today. And as I mentioned in the first segment of today's program, Mr. Denninger and I share a different view of gold and tangible assets. But here on RLA Radio, we like to present all perspectives and let you decide. Now, in this segment, I want to talk to you about one of the not often discussed yet really important driving factors behind the stock market's advance of late, although there's been a lot of volatility here uh, over the past 10 months or so. One of the driving forces between the market's rally last year and the market's recovery somewhat this year has been stock buybacks by corporations. A stock buyback is simply a company buying back its own stock. Now, according to Axios, stock buybacks by companies this year are on pace to exceed last year's record level of over $1 trillion. Last year, publicly traded companies bought back $1.085 trillion of their own stock. Now, this whole issue is getting the attention of some politicians. Business Insider reported this. Politicians like Senators Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Chuck Schumer, and Marco Rubio have derided buybacks explosive rise due in part to the Trump administration's tax cuts, demanding that Congress more fairly regulate what public companies can do with their cash. Senator Sanders and Senator Schumer in the New York Times wrote an op-ed, and I'll give you just a couple sentences from the op-ed. They wrote this. Corporate self-indulgence rather, has become an enormous problem for workers and for the long-term strength of the economy. The following month, there was an opposing piece in the Times. Now, interestingly, when you go back and study history, which is what we like to do here at RLA Radio, for many years, it was illegal for publicly traded companies to buy back their own stock. The regulators that oversee such things considered the practice of a company buying back its own stock a form of stock market manipulation, and thus they made it illegal. Viavox puts it this way. Stock buybacks were illegal throughout most of the 20th century because they were considered a form of stock market manipulation. But in 1982, the Securities and Exchange Commission passed Rule 10B-18, which created a legal process for buybacks 
and open the floodgates for companies to start repurchasing their stock en masse. Now, let me give you just a simple example to make the point that stock buybacks do temporarily drive stock prices higher by increasing earnings per share. Typically, when earnings per share rise, stocks also rise. Now, let's just take an example of a hypothetical company. We'll call it Company XYZ. And to keep it really simple, let's say there's 10 shares of stock outstanding in Company XYZ, and you happen to own one of those shares. Now, Company XYZ earns a dollar this year. They distribute those profits in the form of dividends to the 10 shares of stock, and the earnings per share are 10 cents. A dollar in earnings divided by the 10 shares of stock outstanding, you've got earnings per share of 10 cents. Now company XYZ decides to use its excess cash to buy back five shares of stock. The company has the same earnings of a dollar. However, now when you do the math, you have $1 in earnings. It's the same level of earnings, but now it's spread across fewer shares. Now earnings per share are $0.20. Cents. A dollar divided by five is $0.20. Cents. Stock prices now go up on XYZ because earnings per share increased. But did earnings per share increase? No, earnings were the same. They were just spread across fewer shares. See, the company in this instance, this hypothetical company, XYZ, used its excess cash to buy back shares rather than investing in its business in an attempt to grow it. So here is the reality. Stock buybacks do create an illusion of profitability. Stock buyback activity does not generate additional real wealth for shareholders, however. But many executive pay packages are linked to stock prices. So there are significant incentives for company management to keep stock prices up through buybacks. Buyback activity can drive stock prices higher, which can significantly enhance executive pay packages. Now, some would argue that increasing stock prices benefit all shareholders. And to an extent, that's true. But the only shareholders who benefit are the ones that sell their shares. And presently, there's a lot of evidence that much of the selling of shares is being done by insiders who are then converting the share sales proceeds to other forms of real wealth. There was a Bloomberg article written by John Authors who observed this in his article. For much of the last decade, Companies buying their own shares have accounted for all net purchases. The amount of stock bought back by companies since the 2008 crisis even exceeds the Federal Reserve spending on buying bonds over the same period as part of quantitative easing. Now, I bring this up because it's more proof that caution should be exercised with your nest egg. The Federal Reserve printed nearly $5 trillion out of thin air since the financial crisis, which obviously 
was bullish for stocks. And companies have bought back more stock in terms of dollars than the Fed spent on buying bonds. Really important for you to understand how to potentially protect your nest egg. And we've got some strategies that we outline in the best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. I'd like to invite you to get your free copy of the book. All you have to do is go to the website, newretirementrulesbook.com, and let us know where to mail your free copy. The website, again, is newretirementrulesbook.com, and we'll be glad to send you a complimentary copy of the best-selling book. That's all I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week. 